Good morning. Hope y'all are good. Uh, yeah, we're already doing the message, so um, it's a little earlier than usual, and uh, so we wanted to see who comes in late, so um, that's why we did this. And so, <clears throat> not really, we, <clears throat> we, uh, we're just glad you're here, and so um, today we're going to continue the Better Story series, and today's message is really about how we need to, to live out of the truth of God's Word and, and what God's Word says about us. It's the big T truth in our life, and Hopefully that makes more sense to you by the time the message is over. And so we want to give you a chance to respond at the end of the message um, to the truth that, that God's given us and, and respond to what he's done for us um, as we've come to Christ and, and all the things that God's done for us. And so we're going to do that at the end. We're going to, going to sing two or three songs at the end to really worship and, and just press into God. And so um, that's why we're doing it a little bit different today. Um, we're going to continue a better story. As I said, we got this week and next week we'll wrap up a better story and then we'll jump into a new series. But um, today we're going to start in John chapter 8, um, read verses 31 and 32. And then we're going to flip all the way back to Genesis and read some scripture from Genesis 42. And if you've been coming throughout this series, you've heard me talk about the life of Joseph and Joseph's brothers um, in, in Genesis and, and we're going to pick back up with that, but it was a couple of weeks ago, so I want to remind you a little bit of what's going on and where we're at in that story. Um, as you know, Joseph's brothers, because they were jealous of him, he had some dreams, and God gave him some dreams, and in his dreams, his brothers bowed down to him. He tells his brothers they become jealous. Also, they knew that uh, their father loved Joseph the most. He was kind of his favorite, and so they were jealous of Joseph. They decided that they would sell him, so they sell him into slavery to some travelers coming through. They take him to Egypt. Then in Egypt, a man by the name of Potiphar buys him um, and puts him in his house. And he recognizes that the hand of God's on Joseph. And so um, he elevates Joseph to, to a high place of authority in his house. Things are going well until Potiphar's wife decides to try to seduce Joseph. Um, he resists, but she frames him. And so it ends up being where he gets put in prison uh, and, and he's in uh, Egypt's prison. He meets the cupbearer and the baker who had gotten in trouble with Pharaoh. They had some dreams. He interprets those. Um, the baker ends up going back to Pharaoh as his cupbearer, and, and he gets in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has two dreams that trouble him. No one can interpret the dreams for him. And so the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He had forgotten about him. He remembers Joseph in prison. He says, he can interpret the dreams for you. He goes and gets Joseph. Joseph interprets the two dreams for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's dreams, um, the interpretation of those dreams ended up being that there were going to be seven years of abundance. There were going to be seven years uh, of good crops. And so then the second dream was that there'd be seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh recognizes the hand of God on Joseph. He recognizes the wisdom that Joseph has. And so he um, elevates Joseph to, to his right-hand man, basically, his second in command of Egypt. And Joseph begins to store up those first seven years of abundance, all the grain that he can store. And he's collecting it and, and keeping it for the seven years of famine that would later happen. And so once the famine comes, all people in Egypt and the surrounding areas, because the famine was so severe, they begin to come to Egypt and buy grain, which then brings Joseph's brothers to Egypt to buy grain because um, where they were living in Canaan, it was also in the famine. And so it brings them face to face with Joseph and Joseph's dreams are fulfilled that his brothers would actually bow to him. And so God is trying to work this reconciliation and trying to save um, his people through Joseph, 
Remember, Joseph points us to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. But the brothers, as we're going to see, they have a difficult time realizing that what God's doing is a good thing. And, and, and they get stuck in their guilt and their shame of what they've done to Joseph and, and not even really realizing that it's him that's trying to help them. And we're going to look at that more in verse 42 or chapter 42 of Genesis in just a minute. But that's where we are. That's about 13 chapters. They're trying to sum it up very quickly. Um, let's read John chapter 8, 31 and 32, then flip back to Genesis. It says in John 8, 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Jesus promises that we'll be set free through the truth, set free from sin, but also set free to live for him. Genesis 42, beginning there in verse 18, says, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. And so he's talking to his brothers who've come to buy grain and they're now back before him. They don't recognize him. And so he says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving household. But you must bring your youngest brother. He's talking about Benjamin, who was another of his father's favorites, so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, now listen to this, surely we are being punished because of our brother. So there's guilt in their heart. There's a guilty conscience. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? Reuben is one of the brothers, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. So guilt again there in their hearts. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon, another brother, taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack. So they brought silver to purchase his grain, Joseph giving their silver back, but also giving them the grain and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank. They think they're in trouble. Somehow they're going to find out they didn't pay for the grain. They're going to be in trouble. Yet Joseph was trying to give them their treasure back. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? God's trying to save them. Yet they can't see God's grace working in their lives. Let's pray and we'll get into this message. God, thank you so much for your heart for us, your love for us. God, I thank you this morning that your word is living and active. And God, I pray that it would bring life to us today. I pray that we would truly experience the words of Jesus and that the truth would set us free. God, show us how that works today. Show us how that happens. And God, let us experience that today, to be set free to live for you, to be set free to live in Christ, to be set free to live and be defined and have our identity defined by you. God, we love you. Thank you that you're here, you're faithful, that we're two or more gather. God, you're there. God, we gather in your name to lift you up, to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Well, how many of you have ever had someone tell you a story, um, tell you something that ended up not being true? Like you were told a story, you believed it, but later you found out that it wasn't true. Anybody ever had that happen? I hope most, probably most of you have been what we call lied to. Um, at some point in your life, you believed a story that someone told you that wasn't true. Um, one time when that happened to me, I was about five, six years old. And I was a big Lone Ranger fan. Back when I was little, when I was probably five or six years old, they, they did re reruns of the Lone Ranger all the time. And I would watch those reruns. And I love the Lone Ranger. This was before the movie came out a few years ago, right, that ruined the whole Lone Ranger thing. Um, but, but anyway... When, when the Lone Ranger was playing, I loved it. I watched it. My dad knew how much I loved it. And so one day, um, we're at home, and he says, Brandon, come here. And he, he, he took me into his bedroom. He said, I got to tell you something. And I'm like, what? He goes, you can't tell anybody. I was like, okay. He goes, all right. So he reaches into one of his clothing drawers, and he pulls out a silver pistol bullet. So Lone Ranger had those silver pistol bullets, right? He pulls out this silver pistol bullet. He goes, son, I'm the Lone Ranger. <laughs> I was like, what? This is the greatest news I've ever heard. It's like, this is awesome. And so I was all excited. I was pumped up, man. My dad's the Lone Ranger. Um, I didn't do what he said to not tell. I was telling everybody my dad's the Lone Ranger. And so um, I believed him. After a while, he told me, uh, he let me believe it for quite a while. Sometime last year, he told me that, he wasn't the Lone Ranger. Crushed me for a little bit, but not, it didn't crush me that bad. My therapist said that it wasn't that big a deal. So anyway, um, but yeah, so I believed a story that wasn't true. And, and I think for each one of us in our lives, we've often believed stories that aren't true about who we are. And it, it is a truth, it's a little t truth and our experience tries to teach us this truth, tries to tell us who we are, tries to define who we are. Many times we're defined by the culture around us, the, the story that the culture tells us about ourselves is who we are. Many times it's the events of our lives and the things that have happened to us or that we've done that, that begins to define who we are and, 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 and gives us our identity. Many times it's the influential people in our lives that are telling us things that begin to define who we are, or who we think we ought to become or how we ought to live. And, and so we begin to believe these stories that, that aren't necessarily true about our lives. And today I want us to expose some of those stories. I want us to be able to look at our lives and see that, that God does have a better story and it's in his gospel story. But if we're going to live out of this story, we've got to come to a place where we recognize the truth of God's word is the greatest truth that there is. We, we've got to realize that it's greater than the truth we've believed from our experiences. I want you to think about people in scripture who would have never made a difference, who wouldn't still be talked about today if they believed the story that their experience taught them. Think about Joseph. He would have just wasted away in prison. He never would have done the things that God used him to do and delivered the people um, out of this famine and brought them into Egypt. He, he never would have been able to save his people if he had believed the story that, that his experience was telling. Think about Moses. Moses would have always seen himself as a murderer and as someone who just didn't speak well. And so he, he would have never led the Israelites out of Egypt. He never would have accomplished that. Gideon, one of the judges, he, he, he was 
threshing wine in a wine press. You don't thresh wine in a wine press. You thresh it in an open area so the wind can blow the chaff away from the seed. But he's hiding from the Midianites. And an angel shows up and says, behold, mighty warrior. Gideon's like, mighty warrior, I'm scared to death. But God knew there was something in Gideon. He knew he could do something through Gideon that was greater than what Gideon thought possible. David, he would have always been a shepherd of sheep and never become a shepherd of God's people. Isaiah, he would have always seen himself as unclean and never become the prophet that God created him to be. Matthew, he would have always seen himself guilty and unworthy as a tax collector. And he never would have wrote the first gospel that we read today. Paul would have drowned in his own guilt for persecuting the church and for murder and for enslaving people because of the gospel. He never would have become the greatest evangelist that the world has ever seen. And all of that would have happened if they hadn't believed that God's truth was greater than their truth, if they had not come to believe that God wanted to do something greater through them than what their stories had told them. And I believe this with all my heart, one, because I've seen it in my own life, but I also know that God's word is true. And Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God does exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever think or imagine. And he wants to do that in your life. He wants to do that in my life. He wants to work through us so that his name is known. He wants to work through us so that people come to salvation he wants to work through us his church to bring this gospel message to the world he wants to accomplish great things not for our name's sake but for his name's sake but he wants to do this through us as his spirit works in our lives and transforms us but the world according to the world system we're defined by our, our experiential story we're defined by our experiential truth and what it tells us and who we are, we become the sum total of what we've done, what we're doing, what we will do, or what's been done to us. And so that begins to define our lives. You, you look at most guys when we meet someone, what's one of the first questions we ask them, what do you do, right? Because that's such a huge part of our identity. And so many times when we look at our lives in general, it's about what have I done? What am I doing? And it begins to tell us this story about our lives, which may or may not be true according to God's word. And we've got to realize that we often wear labels that God's not putting on us, that we put on ourselves. And as we begin to wear these labels and we begin to believe this truth about us and about the world, then we begin to live out of that label. We begin to live out of that truth, this little t truth that's trying to dictate and guide our lives. And so we begin to try to live out of that or, or just naturally begin to live out of that. So we begin to have this identity crisis that we're constantly labeled by the influences, the things around us. I, I would tell you to look back at Joseph's brothers. Think about the labels that they would have worn. Guilty is probably the biggest label that they wore because they realized that they were guilty of selling Joseph into slavery, guilty of almost taking his life. They, they, they could have worn the label of unloved because they really just knew one thing about their life is that they were sons of a man who really didn't love them because he, he really didn't even love their mothers. And so they could have seen themselves as unloved. They could have forever seen themselves as betrayers. They had betrayed Joseph. They could have seen themselves as worthless. They could have wore that label. And they did for a very, very long time. 
But the label, as I said, that horrified him the most was that of guilty. And I pointed out to you in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 42, it says that, that they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. There was guilt that was still dominating their life, an event that happened 20 or more years before. It's something that's still dominating their life, guilt for this thing. They say that we must give an accounting for his blood. They, they still know they deserve punishment. And so this thing that happened years ago is still in ways running and dictating their life. It's running and dictating how they live. It's, it's, it's still dominating their thinking. And how many of us are that way that we still have things in our life that we remember from our past that we remember it may have been years and years ago or it may have been last week. And those things, they continue to dominate us. They continue to control our thinking. They continue to want to run rapid in our life and label us and tell us who we are. And it continues on and on and on. And these things in their heart, they knew, look, we're guilty. We deserve punishment. And here's the thing I'll tell you about us. Guys, apart from Jesus, we deserve punishment. We are guilty. We are sinful. I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. We all deserve punishment. God is righteous. We are not. We have sinned against God and we deserve his punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to earth. He was perfect in every way. He took our imperfection, our sin upon himself. He took our punishment. He took the wrath of God. He was condemned so that we wouldn't have to be. He died his death so that we could live. He was put in a tomb, left there for three days. And yet three days later, God raised him from the dead. The first one to be resurrected out of many. And that gives us the promise that if we are in Christ, we too will live with him. Not just after we die an earthly death, but now because we've been born again, we've been taken from death to life spiritually so that we can live for God. He's done this great work for us, but we too would deserve punishment. Our consciences would rightly be condemned. We'd rightly feel guilty. We'd rightly walk around knowing we deserve punishment for the things that we've done. But Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the condemnation for us so that we could be set free. And when we look at Joseph's brothers, it's like they were just waiting on this punishment to come. And it was rightly deserved. Yet Joseph's trying to show them grace. He gives them back their silver. He's trying to bless them. God's trying to save them. They don't recognize it. Their guilty consciences is one of the reasons that they can't see it. They know they're guilty. And it's a barrier between them and Joseph and a reconciliation that they have to get past. You go all the way to the end of the book of Genesis when their father dies, they still think Joseph's gonna kill them for what they did. And Joseph again has to reassure them that God brought him to Egypt so he could save them, not kill them. But so many times we're the same way because of our experience, because of what we've done, because of the sin in our life, because of our imperfection, we walk around condemned. We walk around this barrier that's keeping us from receiving the treasure that God wants to pour into our lives, the treasure that God wants to put into our heart. We've concluded something about ourselves that keeps us from being able to come into God's presence, that keeps us withdrawing from God or running from God rather than turning to God and having our sin forgiven rather than realizing is if I'll turn from my sin and I'll turn to God, he's there to receive me. 
In our lives like this, I brought some things. I want to show you a little demonstration today. And I got this regular cup right here. And I took this cling wrap or saran wrap, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's over the top. And, and what this represents, this saran wrap represents, is it represents that barrier that's between us and God that keeps us from receiving what God wants us to receive. Because if you take this cup and it's, it's covered, there's a barrier between it and receiving what is supposed to be in it. And God tries to pour his love into our life, his grace into our lives, but we can't receive it. And so it just continues to run off of our life, us never really receiving what God wants. It's a barrier that exists there. But the, the good news is this. The sin barrier has been removed by Jesus. There's nothing that keeps us from coming to God. All we have to do is turn from our ways and turn to God's ways and come into his presence if we're in Christ. In the Old Testament, when they, you went to the temple, there was a curtain that hung there and it separated everybody from the Holy of Holies, which represented the presence of God. It was where God resided. And that was their symbol of God's holy presence. Only one man went in there one time a year and that was the high priest to make sacrifice and atonement for the people's sins. He would go in there. But there's this awesome thing that happens and it's a, a very intentional detail, but it's a detail that we can miss in the New Testament. In fact, it's in Matthew 27, 51. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, that the veil of the temple was torn in two. It was, it was separated. And what he's telling us there is that when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, taking the sin of the world, taking the sin of those who would put their faith in him, who would trust in him, what he's telling us is this, that there's no longer a barrier to keep us from coming to God. What awesome news, Right? There's nothing that hinders us from coming to him anymore. Not because we're perfect, but because he's perfect. And he took our imperfection. Not because we're righteous, but because he's righteous. We're wretched, but he exchanged our wretchedness for his righteousness. Giving us the ability now to come boldly before the throne of God. Then we come boldly before the throne of God, not because we've got it all together, but we come boldly before the throne of God so that we can receive grace and mercy in our time of need, in our time of temptation, in our time of struggle, in our time of suffering, in our time of difficulty, in our time of facing a situation that we don't know if we're going to get through it. God says, come into my presence, not because you've got it all together, but I'm the one that can put it all together. Come into my presence and receive what I have for you. My grace, my unmerited favor, my unmerited love, my undeserved love. Come into my presence and receive it. It's a free gift, just like Joseph putting those, that silver back in their bags. It's a free gift. He's given us this free gift of grace to receive, to, to, to work in our lives. See, Jesus, when he died and the temple curtain was torn, he didn't put a zipper in it. So that when he, you, you messed up, he zipped it back up. It was torn once and for all. And if you're in Christ, you have access to the Father. But our imperfection tends to keep us running from him rather than running to him. And one of the things that we've got to realize is that it's not our guilt that makes us become more like Jesus. It is his grace that makes us become more like Jesus. We often carry our guilt around thinking that somehow it's going to make me do right. But our guilt only, only suppresses the righteousness that Jesus wants to raise up in us. We've got to come to a place where we realize it is grace that transforms us. It is grace that saves us. It is grace that does this work in us. 
But this is what we usually do. Look back in Genesis in, in chapter 43. They've gone, they've gotten Benjamin, their youngest brother. They've come back. And I want to read to you verses 11 through 15 because this is how we typically approach it. It says, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, he's talking about taking Benjamin. He didn't want him to take Benjamin because he loved Benjamin. He didn't want something to happen to Benjamin. So if it must be that you take Benjamin, then do this. Put some of the best products, some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you. So double up. For you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. They don't realize that it's the mercy of God that's working in their lives now. He says, that Benjamin may come back with you. As for me, I am bereaved. I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented them to Joseph. I want you to see what they're doing in this. They're thinking if we take him enough good stuff, he'll accept us maybe. If we take him the best things we have, he'll accept us. If we take him double the amount of silver, maybe he'll forgive us and he won't kill us. And so many times, that's how we think we approach God. We, we, we bring all this stuff to him. We try to double down and, and work harder. We try to double down and, and by works approach God thinking that that's going to make him accept us. That that's going to make him, him love us. That somehow I can work my way to Jesus. Christianity is the only religion in the world in which we don't work our way to God. God came to us. And I want you to see this. And this is, this is the truth. That you don't give your best to God so that he will love you. You give your best to God because he does love you. You don't give your, your, your works to God, the good things you do. You don't do them to try to earn God's grace. You do them because God's grace has transformed your heart and you live out of it in worship to God. But the church has gotten it backwards so many times that we think if I get my stuff together, then I can come to God. If I clean up enough, maybe he'll accept me. Not realizing that it's when we come to him in our mess, in our filth, in our sin, that he then picks us up. He then cleans us off. He cleans us out. He fills us with his spirit. His spirit transforms our heart, giving us a new heart, giving us new desires, giving us a, a revelation of who God is and what he's done for us so that then we begin to live for God, not out of duty and out of obligation and out of trying to earn his grace, but out of love and out of worship and because he's given us his grace. It's a whole different way of looking at life. It's a whole different way of looking at God. Listen, again, we don't become more like Jesus because of guilt. We become more like Jesus because of grace. Listen, if we were able to earn God's favor, if we could work our way to God, then grace would cease to be grace. But we are saved by grace, his unmerited favor, his undeserved Love. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. When we put our faith in Christ, we receive his grace that changes our heart, that forgives our sins, that gives us the ability to live for him. But grace would cease to be grace if we could somehow earn it. Grace is a free gift of God that we can never do enough good to earn. 
But once we receive it, God begins to do his good through our lives. But how many times do we do this same thing that the brothers do where we think I'll do a little better, I'll, I'll try harder, I'll, I'll get it right this time. And we put our eyes on the work that we need to do or we put our eyes on the sin that's holding us back or, or the thing that trips us up and we focus on that thing. But the Bible tells us not to do that. He says, focus your eyes on Jesus, put your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. And run the race that's set out before you. Cast off sin. Cast off anything that entangles you, that hinders you from running this race. Consider him who endured the suffering that he endured so that we can continue. He gives us the ability to continue going, to take our next step with God, to continue to follow. That's what Jesus said when he called the disciples. He didn't walk by them and say, get your junk together. He walked by them and said, follow me, because he knew if they were with him and they were walking with him, that their lives would be transformed. It's the same thing with us. Put your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes off the struggle. Get your eyes off the sin. Get your eyes off the imperfection. Get your eyes off of culture. Get your eyes off the world. Get your eyes off your boyfriend. Get him off your girlfriend, off of your spouse, off of all these other things. Your kids, quit, quit putting all your value in the success of your children. And realize that it's only in Christ that we're going to find what we're looking for. Put our eyes on Jesus. And as we follow him, as we pursue him, as we press into him, we become more like Christ. I want you to see that there's this initial reception of grace through faith that saves us in Jesus. And then there's this continual receiving of grace through Jesus that we begin trans, being transformed. Our minds begin being renewed. We begin to be changed. I did an illustration one time where, where I brought a pair of my jeans on, on stage and I brought a pair of my youngest son Reed's jeans on stage. At the time, he was like one or two years old. So I had my big fat boy jeans up here on stage and then I had his little jeans. I showed everybody, I was like, look, this is a pair of my jeans. They were like, oh. And, and then I showed them Reed's. I was like, look, these are Reed's. They're like, oh. It's like, why didn't y'all all over my jeans, right? And so I brought him up there to say this. Look, I could go ahead and give Reed those jeans. I could give him those jeans to wear. He could put them on. They would cover him, but they'd be huge on him. Reed would have to grow into them. It's going to take him several years to fit into them. It's going to take a lot of French fries to fit into them before he's going to be able to wear them. And they, he really fit into what they are. It's the same way with Jesus. He gives us this incredible righteousness that, listen, we still can't fathom. We can't begin to understand that it's going to amaze us for all of eternity when we see him. He gives us this righteousness and he covers us with this righteousness and this righteousness clothes us. And the Bible says we're clothed in Christ. So God sees us as righteous, but it doesn't really fit yet. It's ours. We, we have it. He's freely given it, but we have to grow into it. We still are growing in Christ. We're growing into the righteousness that God has given us. And so my definition, there's this big church word called, called sanctification. When you come to faith in Jesus and your sins are forgiven, he justifies you. It's justification. It's just as if you'd never sinned. It's when you're made guiltless. You're no longer sinful in the eyes of God. You've been made righteous by Jesus. And that happens in justification. But there's this other word called sanctification. And sanctification is when we grow in the righteousness that Jesus has given us. In fact, that's my definition of sanctification is it's growing into the identity that God has already given us through Jesus. 
And so he's given us this new identity, this righteousness that we wear that clothes us, that, that takes our right wretchedness and gives us his righteousness. And so before God, I'm now made right. I have a right relationship, a reconciled relationship. The very thing Joseph is going to do for his brothers, we see in Christ that he came to us, gives us the free gift of grace and reconciles us back to himself. His brothers think he's going to kill them, but he's there to save them. He recognizes the hand of grace on his life and he gives that to God. God comes to us and he gives us his grace so that we can then live out his righteousness. Grace is not a crutch so that we can continue to sin. Grace is a catalyst that empowers us to fulfill the righteousness that Christ has given us. And so we need to see that and walk in this relationship with God. Having this relationship, you, you can't consistently live privately or publicly as Christ until you see yourself as Christ does. The flip side of that is you can't continually live contrary to Christ when you see yourself as Christ does. It changes your vision. It's a new revelation. It's a new way of life. It's a new way of living. The religious objection to this is that if we tell people they're forgiven, if we tell people they've been set free from sin, then the problem's going to be they're just going to go out and sin more. But that's not the case because when we realize what God's done for us, it doesn't lead to sinful behavior. It leads to worship. Because we see what God has done, his spirit in us, cries, Abba, Father. That's what Paul wrote to the Romans. I do want to read you a scripture out of Romans. It's actually, it's in here. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So we're dead to sin. We've died to that. Our lives daily, we die to sin. We die to our old ways. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Live a new life. It's that life that God calls us to, that he gives us the ability to live. And so we come into this love of God, this relationship with God, and we still live our lives as though our imperfections can separate us. But listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said, there's nothing that's gonna separate us from the love of God any longer because we are in Christ. Not death, not life, not the good days, the bad days. Nothing separates me from Jesus. And so we have that promise from God and we have this truth to live out of, this great truth that's in scripture. But practically, how do we do that? It's, it's great truth, man. This is real, that God's given us his righteousness through Jesus. He's made us right with him. But how do we practically live out of that? How do we practically see that become our identity? I want to speak to that for just a minute. Because it begins by receiving the truth of Jesus, the big T truth. I told you that many times we're defined 
Our identity becomes based off of our experiential truth, what our experience, what our influences, what are the events of our lives. All those things have taught us. It's a little T truth. It's real. It really happened. It's really there. But sometimes what it tells us is untrue. And so we develop an identity. We begin to believe things about ourselves that aren't right. That's a little T truth. What I'm telling you is to trust in the big T truth of God. It's a greater truth than what we see in the world around us. It is the truth that can, can define you if you're in Christ and should define you if you're in Christ. It should show you the way to live. It should tell you who you are and what you should be about. It's basically last week we talked about the truths that we took from Jesus and his disciples being in the boat when Jesus walked on the water. We talked about four truths. The last one was this, that Jesus has the final word in your story. Jesus has the final word in your life about who you are. And so when we look at that, Jesus is the one who has the truth about who we are and about our lives and about who we should be. How many of you like to play cards? Any card players in here? You like to gamble? Oh, y'all are liars. <laughs> Y'all's hands went down so fast. Well, can you tell the preacher we gamble? I brought some cards with me. How many of you like to play spades? Anybody like to play spades? Some spades player. My wife loves to play spades. I like it all right. We end up playing spades on, on our vacation a lot. Um, and so I brought some cards and I wanted you to see something that, that I hope will help you remember how the truth of God should work in our lives. Because in the game of spades, what you do is you give out all the cards. You have four or six players, however many players is even number. You're on teams with your partner. They pass out the cards. You bet on how many tricks you're going to make or how many hands you're going to win. Once the cards are, are put out there, this is a very like elementary, just simple explanation of space. Once you have your cards, the cards are put out there. Whoever has the highest card wins, right? And so if we're, if we're playing the suit of hearts, then everybody's laying out hearts if they have one. And if somebody lays out the five of hearts and, and then the next player has the ace of hearts, they throw the ace of hearts on the five, they win that trick, they win that hand. Does that make sense? And so that card wins. But here's the cool thing about spades that there's one card that trumps everything. I'm not saying Trump like Donald Trump. I was saying this a long time before he was president, all right? Uh, but not a political statement. But it trumps everything else, this one card. What card is that? The ace of spades, right? The ace of spades trumps everything, unless you play with jokers, right? And so you got the, the ace of spades that trumps everything. It's the same way with God's word. That when we read the word of God, when we really stand on the truth of God, we begin to understand that God's truth trumps every other truth in my life. Everything that tries to define me, every experience that tries to tell me who I am or who I should be, every influence in my life that wants to lead me away from God or tell me who I am apart from Christ. The thing I have to realize is that the big T truth of God's word trumps those things so that when you have the ace of spades, the word of God, it trumps everything else in our lives. And so what we look at is we may have been dealt the card of addiction. We may have people here who you've struggled with addiction. You've struggled with, with, with um, addiction to drugs or alcohol or pornography. But the good news of the word in Romans 6, 18 says that you've been set free from sin. That truth 
trumps this truth. It means that God wants to do something in your life to set you free from that addiction, to set you free from what's been holding you back, that we have been set free from the sin that entangles us and keeps us from running the race that God wants us to run. We've got to receive that. In fact, we've got to let it go from being something that we we mentally assent to and read it and go, yeah, that's a great truth to something that we receive in our hearts and we stand on so that when Satan tries to throw that back at us, we can look at him and say, I've got a truth that's greater than that. And that truth is that I'm in Christ and that in Christ, I'm set free from the power of sin and the power of death. And I no longer have to live that way anymore. In fact, it has no hold on my life because of what Jesus has done in me. And then Maybe the card that you've been dealt, the the hand that you hold is a bad relationship. Maybe that's what it is that's hindering you, that's hurting you, that that keeps you from living the life that God wants you to live. And maybe it's even hindering you from trusting God because maybe it was a father who walked out. Maybe it was a spouse who walked out and you feel like if I trust God, he's going to leave me alone too. The thing that we've got to see is there's a greater truth in that. In fact, in Hebrews 13, 5, The trump card that God gives us is the fact that he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you. I'll never leave you alone. I'm going to stand with you. And so we know that we have something that's a greater truth than that. Maybe our life was lived promiscuously. Now we see ourselves as damaged goods. Maybe we've done things in our life that we think we'll never be able to overcome because our past, it just continues to haunt us. The sin of our past continues to haunt us and we think we'll never get beyond it, that God's arm's not long enough to save us. But that's a lie. God's arm is not too short to save. And the good news is that 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us that we're a new creation in Christ. That the old is gone, the new has come, we're new in Jesus. The other thing that I want you to see is in Psalm 103, 12, tells us that our sin's been separated as far as the east is from the west. No longer does it have the power to define us. It no longer has a hold in our lives so that God's truth trumps. Many times what we believe to be truth, if we stand on it, if we live out of it, it transforms everything. Transforms everything. I'm about out of time. I got to go quick. So y'all got to listen fast. I got a letter that I told you a few weeks ago to write that letter. How did I get here? And, and, and it's looking at your life and the influences and the things that, that, that have impacted you and created you to be who you are. And I want to read just a part of a letter that someone gave me that they wrote the, their how to get here story. And I want you to see how many lies you can believe and how many things can can come into our mind that aren't true. Listen to what this guy wrote. He said, a a sore spot for me has always been that I never measured up in the competition that is life. Does that not sound like a lie from the devil? You're not good enough. I used to think that I could only reach the ceiling of average at everything I did. Another lie, God tells us he wants to do it seemingly abundantly more than we could think or imagine. He says in baseball, is a good defender, mediocre overall, relationships, Average, school, an honor graduate from high school with no effort but lost hope scholarship my first year. Then listen to this. After years of that thought living in the back of my mind, I eventually believed it. I had no hope. And he's not talking about the scholarship. He's talking about I had no hope in life. And that's a lie. We have hope in Christ. The greatest truth we have is the truth of Jesus that gives us hope. 
He says, but God had a better story. That's true. Jesus saved me in January of 2011. And with that, he gave me a new identity. That's true. Even a year into my faith, I still couldn't shake the thought that I was still average. It's a lie that was still trying to rob him of what God's wanting to do in his life. He skips on down. He says, about three months ago, I finally said, enough about you. You are who I say you are. God finally tells him this. And it was true. He says, God told him, I love you. You are my son. You are righteous. You are redeemed. It's true. You have access to my throne. I hear your prayers. It's true. There's no condemnation for you. You're in Christ. It's true. James 5, 16, my prayers have power because God deems me a righteous man. I'm not who I say I am. I am who the I am says I am. It's true. But you can see just in that little part of his story, how many lies we begin to believe. I told you about going out to Colorado when I was at a very low point in my life. And most of it was due to this identity crisis of, of not trusting in who God said I was. And while I was out there, I did a how did I get here story and I began to see the lies that I was believing, but also wrote a letter from the, the word of God. This is one big letter from God that reveals who he is through Jesus. And I began to take his truth and I wrote a letter that I want to read to you. And, and, and so you can see how the truth works in our life. This is all out of scripture. I'll give you the scripture that the truth comes from. It says, dear Brandon, trust in the truth and not what your experience says. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. I've called you to preach my gospel and lead my church. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. You're competent and able because I created, equipped and purposed you for this task. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. I want you to see yourself as I see you. Delight, I delight in you and there's no condemnation for you. Romans 8, 1, Zephaniah 3, 17. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. You are my child and I love you. Galatians 4, 6 through 7, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. No matter what anyone else says, you are okay because I've said you are okay. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now be strong and courageous, standing firm on these truths. Joshua 1, 6 through 9. Live out of grace and love by both giving it and receiving it. 1 John 2, 5 through 6. Acts 3, 6 and Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Preach boldly and lead courageously because I'm with you and you will finish this race well. Philippians 1, 6, Philippians 3, 12 through 14, 2 Timothy 4, 7, Hebrews 12, 12, 2 and 3. You're my son with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 3, 17, Colossians 3, 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 and Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Now rely on and live in my love. 1 John 4, 16. God. And he tells us this through our scripture. Today in your seats, you got a letter that also I wrote from scripture. It's to this church because we need to know who we are in Christ and what Christ has called us to. I want you to read it and, and even use it as a model to go into scripture and find the truths about who you are in Christ. Right here, I can't read them to you, but I've got three pages of truths about who we are in Christ. If you want, to, want them, email us or, 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 or let us know you want them, we'll get them to you. But listen, there's so many truths. I'm a new creation. I can trust God to continue to work in me. It's Philippians 1.6. I'm his handiwork. Ephesians 2.10. It goes on. I'm gifted. 1 Corinthians 1.7. I'm strong. 2 Corinthians 12.9. All of these truths for us to stand on, for us to write our own letter from God with, for us to be able to see his truth and walk in it and live in it. All of those truths are, listen, the treasure that Jesus is trying to give us. Just as Joseph gave that treasure to his brothers, they didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. 
Jesus is doing the same thing. He gives us this treasure of his word. He gives us the treasure of his presence. He gives us the treasure of, of a relationship with him. Now we've got to live out of it. We've got to embrace it, accept it, receive it. We've got to stand on the truth of God's word so that we know who we are. We've got to quit running from God in our imperfection and then realize it's only by drawing close to the one who's perfect that we can be changed, that we can be saved. And so we need to draw near to him. And that's my heart for you. I've seen the power of this. I've seen John 8, 31 and 32 being so true in my life. I want that for you. So many Christians mentally assent to that scripture that Jesus will set me free. I'll know the truth and the truth will set me free, but so many haven't experienced it. And I'm telling you, if we will stand on the big T truth and trust Jesus, he'll set us free. The first thing that we've got to do is we've got to trust in Christ. We've got to come to a place where we put our trust in the big T truth and the truth giver who is Jesus. So we come to a place where our faith rests in him, that he's the savior of our lives. He's taking our sin and the punishment for it and set us free. He's the Lord of our lives. And I've surrendered my life to him because of the grace he's put in my life. And so I wanna give you this opportunity. If you're here today, you don't have a relationship with God. You're not in Christ. These truths are, are really not applying to you because you're not in Christ. Never had a relationship with God, but today you say, God's speaking to my heart. I, I wanna know him. I want a relationship with him. I want this truth to define who I am. I wanna be able to live this out to the glory of God. I want to give you that opportunity before we sing. And I'm going to give you this opportunity right now. If you're here and that's you, you want to receive the grace of Jesus today by faith in Christ, not through your works, but through a reception, through faith that transforms our lives, that gives us a new heart, gives us the ability to live a life that honors God. If you're here and you say today, I want to receive Christ, I want you to raise your hand. And then we're going to sing, but I want you to raise your hand receive me. We saw one person do this at nine o'clock. It's awesome to watch a miracle happen where people go from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in Jesus and the reception of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you say today, I need to receive Christ into my life. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Would you raise your hand? All right, then this is what I want to do. I want to pray for us. And then we're going to worship the God who's done all of this for us. We're going to press into him through worship. I, I, listen, blow the roof off this building. We'll put another one on it, right? It leaked for a long time anyway, so it's no big deal. But we need to lift our voices to the one who's given us such great truth, who's given us such great promises, who's given us such a future, a better story, the gospel story for our lives, that we can live a life that brings him glory. So I want to pray and then we're gonna sing. God, thank you for your heart for us, your life, God. In the next 15 minutes, God, I pray that, God, you would receive just the praise that you deserve. And even long after we've walked out of this building, God, that you would continue to receive the praise that you deserve from our hearts and from our lives. God, work in us and transform us. Set us free by the truth of your word. Do a great work in us, God, so you can do a great work through us. And God, we trust you in that. We're gonna stand on your word and we're gonna go forward as your people. God, we praise you, we love you. We give you the honor. We worship you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand and sing?